Welcome to the AudioCraft 2016 conference series. I'm Kate Montague. This producer profile was recorded at our first ever conference that we held in March 2016. You're about to hear Joel Werner in conversation with Tiger Webb. Joel started out in community radio and then worked at RN. Then he went to the US and produced content for Radio Lab, On the Media, Freakonomics, and Nate Silver's 538. Last year, he won a Third Coast Award for his 99% invisible piece, Structural Integrity. Joel now produces at RN and works on his own podcast, In Your Voice. Tiger Webb is an online and radio producer at RN. He's also a supervising producer on FBI Radio's All the Best program. This was another great session from the day with some surprising facts about pigs in clothes. And thanks to uh, Audiocraft. I think this is the kind of day that in five or ten years we'll look back on and say, you know, this is, this is where something started. Yeah, thank you all for coming. It's great to see everyone. All right, so um, might start off asking uh, a question people might not know the answer to, Joel, which is, how did you get into radio, Joel? Yeah, um, indirectly, I think, is the short answer. When, when, I, first, uh, when I first joined the ABC, Richard Aidey, said something that stuck with me. And um, he said, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're a journalist and you want to get into TV, then you pretty much know that from when you're about eight, nine, ten years old. And, like, a lot of TV people know that they want to get into TV and it's a super young person's game and it, they're, they're really driven to get into TV, whereas a lot of radio people tend to, to stumble into radio having done something else beforehand. And, and I definitely belong to that camp. Um, so I did a Bachelor of Psychology as my undergrad grad degree straight out of school and then started working in health and medical research. It was pretty much like, I've done an honours year, I know how to do stats, I want to get a job, I can do this kind of work. It wasn't, um, it, it, it was something of a passion, but what I'd later realised wasn't a passion. Um, I was playing a lot of music at the time. I played in any number of kind of crap bands that, you know, would... Uh, <laughs> would have 20 people come along and break even and have a case of beer at the end of the night. Um, and then, yeah, I kept... Uh, the only way to progress in a science research career is to do a PhD, and the idea of doing a PhD was just abhorrent to me, and so I had to kind of think, what do I want to do with my life? Um, and science media was always something that I'd been interested in, so I started doing a journalism master's, and that's when I circled back through community radio in Sydney. And so I'd, been play I'd gone to FBI a lot and to SCR occasionally playing music and promoting music and hanging out with people there from that side of the fence. But I'd never actually been in thinking about what the people who were there making radio do. Were you listening to radio much at this point in time? I was listening to... Like, so the science show was a big one. Um... I remember, yeah, like as a kid, like not, maybe, maybe not as religiously as I do now, but there was a real epiphany at 2SER when, like I don't want to get, get cliched this early on in the talk, but it was definitely a moment that changed my life in that newsroom. And yeah, I mean, I think community radio is super important and we should all support it. So you're at 2SER, you have your life-changing moment, your epiphany which is not at all cliched, I think. You're entitled to those. Uh, how do you get in the door at the ABC? What happens next? Yeah, you get in the door at the ABC by not getting a job at the ABC that you go for. Um, 
So I went for a reporter role in the science unit. Um, the science health unit's my home. Uh, I feel like uh, next to the home I share with my lovely wife. Um, I went for a job there and like the uh, abusive parents they can sometimes be, they said, no, you're not good enough, go away. Um, but Norman knew, Norman knew the work I was doing in medical research. I was working at a dementia collaborative research centre uh, that was the Prince of Wales UNSW collaboration um, at that time. And we should say as well, this is Dr Norman Swan, presenter of the Health Report for 30 years on Radio National, one of the ABC's many radio channels. And he's great. And he said, too bad on not getting the job. Um, off you go back to your world of your life in research that you hate. <laughs> but um, pitch me stories. Um, there, I think it was my maybe... Like, there was at least a dozen ideas that I pitched him before he uh, accepted one. The first story I got up was about the therapeutic use of MDMA in uh, treating PTSD. Um, so Norman said, please come and freelance for us. Um, I did. The guy who got the job realised it wasn't for him and I was on an eligibility list and they got me in as a reporter. And so after reporting for a while for Radio National's Science Unit, you, you make a show some people might have heard of here. Uh, you, you, you build a show um, called Off Track. What happened there? Yeah, so I think it was the end of my first year full-time and there was a commissioning round and I decided, hey, I'm going to pitch a, a show idea. Um, there had been really good environmental science programs in the past and I wanted to re reignite that tradition. Um, so, yeah, so um, there was a meeting of worlds there and we got off track and I learnt on the job for a good... Two years there. Right, and um, I guess we can probably hear something from Off Track, or would you like to talk a bit about what we're going to hear first? Yeah, let's play some, let's play some tape. Um, just to set this up, this is, uh, you, you might have heard recently that Australia just got granted permission for, their, for our first ever body farm. So there's a lot of these in America, but this is where forensic scientists study decomposition of, uh, of, of corpses by uh, getting people who have donated their body to science and leaving them out in a field. And uh, obviously it's very controversial. And uh, Shari's leading this research and she's only just got permission to do a body farm. Before they could use humans, they used pigs. And so one day for Off Track, I went out to a location I'm, I've never been allowed to, to speak out loud after this interview for obvious reasons and uh, was greeted, well, yeah, this is the top of the, the show that um, I played on air afterwards. Okay, so if you're squeamish, this probably isn't the off track for you. But for everyone else, I just want you to, to listen to this scene for a moment. Let your ears zoom around. It's obviously a bushland setting. Right at the top, can you hear the birds? There's occasionally a whip bird there, I don't know what those other birds are. If you do, just head to the Off-Track website via the RN homepage and let me know. Zooming down, closer to the mic, can you hear the flies? There are flies buzzing around. And then even closer. What's that? I've been told it sounds like a stream bubbling along, but it's not a stream. That sound... That sound is where we start today's program. All of the science we're investigating today, it all happens right here. 
That sound you're hearing, it's the sound at the borderline between life and death. It would otherwise be the perfect place to spend an afternoon picnicking, a sun-dappled, open eucalyptus woodland on Western Sydney's Cumberland Plain, right at the foot of the Blue Mountains. But dotted throughout this clearing are half a dozen decomposing pig carcasses. The pigs are bred for human consumption, but they're bought from the abattoir in the name of science. Hi, you're listening to Off Track here on RN. I'm Joel Werner, and today we're joining forensic scientist Professor Shari Forbes in the field. By studying how these pig carcasses decompose, Shari hopes to gain a better understanding of how human remains decompose, thereby improving the efficacy of her forensic investigations. Oh yeah, and that sound you've been listening to? It's what's known as a maggot mass. It's eating away the mouth of one of these pig carcasses. I warned you, today's show isn't for the faint of heart. At the moment, we're just about to move this hood, but then we'll set up on that pig. So, yeah, I just have to take this hood off and clean it before the next sample so that we don't cross-contaminate our samples. So you'd be surprised how much decomposition odour can really stick to things. So, Yeah, the odour might be a little bit more concentrated because we've just had the hood on for about 20 minutes. So apologies if you get a big whiff as it comes off. For this first experiment, the scientists leave a stainless steel fume hood on top of the carcass for about 20 minutes before sampling the gas that collects underneath. This is my first up-close look at one of the pigs. So uh, I think one of the things people probably noticed straight at the bat is that doesn't sound particularly like a talk show or an interview-based show on Radio National or many ABC networks. And you kind of hear... I think two things that are immediately different about Off Track, even now it's sort of still to this day uh, with Joel and the health report, uh, Off Track continues, hosted by Ann Jones. There's two things you hear that you don't hear a lot of in a lot of other ABC programming that's sort of not on the features side, and that's you hear the environment, you hear the voice of the environment, and you also hear people in their natural habitat, not in a studio sweating and freaking out because the studio is a very artificial, uh, in a sense, demeaning construct. So how important was it for you to get that casting for 41 years on Radio National? If they play music underneath an interview, four million boomers write in and complain that we have emotionally manipulated them, like we're some kind of Joyce Carol Oates novel. And so for Joel to come in and do this, which sounds now in this sort of golden era of, of podcasts and new audio that we apparently have to say every 30 seconds that we live in. Um, it, it was actually quite... I think it's had an effect and it has been a bit of a shift in, in how a lot of people view what the ABC does and certainly what individual producers, how they can approach things. But then you make this epoch-shifting <laughs> program that is off track and you build it and then you um, bugger off. You, you go to New York. Yeah, yeah, just pack up and leave. So what are you doing radio-wise in the United States of America, Joel? Before, before I sort of uh, go to, to make my fortune in New York, I just want to... You subtly did it, but I'd, I'd really like to plug off track as it stands today and as it has been for the last two and a bit seasons because in a lot of ways, I think um, Ann Jones 
understands that show in a way that I never consciously did. And she's making some of the most beautiful radio documentaries that are going around in this country right now. So go and if you download anything after today, go and listen to a few off tracks. Um, New York was a, a shotgun blast of inspiration. It was uh, my wife uh, getting sick of her job uh, in the state government and Googling climate adaptation jobs in New York and finding one and applying for it and over a six-week period getting that job. So we decided to, to pack up and leave. Um, the ABC were great and uh, really supportive of me going in and sort of seeing what happened in New York. Um, so what happened in New York? <laughs> one, of the, one of the first stories that you pitch while you're overseas in the United States of America, you, you had this great idea that you'd start small. You, yeah, start, yeah. you start, start with a small show, just pitch a story to a program that uh, people might have heard of, 99% Invisible, and better yet, a story that they already know about. You're not bringing them anything new. This is the piece that becomes structural integrity that won a swag of awards. Uh, let's foreground that, I guess, a bit before we hear some of it. Yeah, so this is, um, I mean, I love 99PIs. I've been one of my favourite shows since. There, there's an early episode called um, The Sounds of the Artificial World. It's a four and a half minute piece. It's just, it's one of the best bits of radio ever made. Um, I pitched them this piece. Roman's already got a key character, but, and so initially they write back and say, look, great idea. It's actually so great. We're, we've been working on it. Like 18 months ago, Roman was working on it. And so, sorry, but thanks. And then two days later, I get a call back. And they'd read my pitch and gone, wait, you actually know a bunch of stuff that we don't know about the story. You're in New York. How about you do it? Um, which was amazing um, and just, you know, um, dreams come true kind of stuff. Uh, so then I start reporting it, and it's all about this building. Do it. Should I give a quick... So this is the building? Yeah, this is uh, City Corp Centre. It's on Lexington and 53rd from memory. It's in Midtown Manhattan. It's 59-storey skyscraper. You'd recognise it because at the top of the building, it's got a 45-degree angled crown. It's like a really obvious top. And the bottom uh, overhangs the street. So you're looking straight up the face of the building, and this is like the, the, the pillars that should be in the corner are actually in the mid-face of the... Um, of, the, of the, mid, the middle of the face, and that becomes really important in the story. So should we play the top of this? This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. I'm going to tell you a story first about how a building got designed, a very unusual building in New York, the Citicorp Tower. When it was built in 1977, Citicorp Center was, at 59 stories, the seventh tallest building in the world. You know, I can still remember the first time I saw the Citicorp Center. As you exit the local 6 subway station at Lexington and 53rd in Midtown Manhattan, you're confronted by a sheer 915-foot building face shooting up right from your feet. That's reporter Joel Werner. With its gleaming facade of glass and steel and striking 45-degree angle crown, the Citicorp Centre is truly one of the most spectacular skyscrapers on a skyline known for its spectacular skyscrapers. But really, it's the base of the building that takes your breath away. This massive 59-storey skyscraper levitates mid-air, hovering 115 feet above the street corner. 
At first glance, the building seems to violate the basic laws of physics. When you look up, you look directly at the underside of the building corner. It overhangs the sidewalk. I mean, where you'd expect a column or even the ground. Instead, there's nothing, just thin air. Of course, the building isn't really levitating. It's propped up on stilts, which join the building at the midpoint of each side. It does not look sturdy, but it's got to be sturdy. It's got to be safe, or they wouldn't have built it this way, right? Yeah, well, that's the secret about this building. And it was literally a secret for nearly two decades after it was built. The Citicorp Centre could very well have blown over in the wind. What I wanted to know was when was this building going to fall down? The architect of the Citigroup Center was Hugh Stubbins, but most of the credit for this building is given to the chief structural engineer, William LeMessure. You laugh at me, but I did conceive it on a napkin at a a Greek restaurant in Cambridge. LeMessure passed away in 2007. This is him giving a talk at MIT in 1995. The whole problem was to build a building on a site that has a church in one corner. St. Peter's Lutheran Church. Crummy old building. It was the lowest point of Victorian architecture. I don't think it was that bad. Uh, so I, I want to just touch on something very quickly, Joel, which is uh, 99% Invisible do this really funny thing if we're talking about narrative voices and hosts and the idea of hosts and who they are, where they kind of don't do the co-host thing that Radiolab sort of pioneered in the early thousands. They do this weird uh, s- seamless mix of the reporter, the host maybe another reporter. Uh, you've got archival sort of sounds in there as well. Uh, what was it like actually writing that script and working in that process? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and, and the extra element I threw in, which I think is a hangover of my off-track days, which, which Roman and Sam... Uh, so Roman Miles, host of 99% Invisible, and Sam Greenspan, who was the in-house producer uh, working on this story with me. Um, I wanted to go and get some actual recorded on the street under the building, you know, like reflections, like the sort of my immediate reaction to seeing the building on tape. And they were like, don't worry about that. We don't need that. And I'm like, I I kind of push back hard on that because, and I think it sort of adds a bit of flavor. Like you actually hear me on the street in a a non-constructed way. Um, Anyway, so yeah, we got that and the archival tape of the architect or the structural engineer. And then we threw... So I went through and I edited all our selects or the cuts that we were going to use to build the the show and transcribed those into a Google Doc. And then Roman and Sam and I sat with a Google Doc on one screen. So they're in Oakland, California, by the way, and I'm in New York. And you have, like, your Google Doc in one screen and your Pro Tools edit window in the other. And we're sharing sessions and kind of just throwing the structure around. Um, In terms of who's actually voicing what. Uh, I feel like because I was a a fan of the show before I was working on the show, and they're obviously quite familiar with the show because they make it, um, I think it was like you have a feeling for how a 99% invisible works. So it's sort of like you felt when it was time to hear Roman's voice and you felt when it was time to hear my voice again and maybe like okay, we've got this in archive tape, but it's not, it's not really strong archive tape, whereas like the stuff about the napkin, when I heard him talk about drawing this building that has all of these flaws and it's going to blow over in a hurricane, and when I heard him talking about building that on a napkin, I was just like, oh, 
I had one of those four in the morning moments, like, this is going in the show. Um, and so, yeah, you're kind of like, you're building around that, but they do really work on a feel. Like the, narr- the, like, the division of narrative is really a feel thing, and maybe they outline it more to reporters who are less familiar with the show, but for me it was, I think when we went to record, there were maybe two or three bits that Roman and I both recorded because we didn't know until we got that tape down who was going to be best to say it. But this is over, you know, like... I can't remember how long the final script was, but it's a 24-minute show, you know. So it was a lot of a lot of lines of dialogue, and 95% of them would have been written months beforehand. Mm. And the other thing as well is you've got to think about how to tell this story. In Australia, I think we're not obviously as familiar with the inner workings of uh, City Corp Centre in New York, but people did kind of already know this was a thing. Not maybe not everyone, and but maybe not maybe a sizable proportion of 99% of visible listeners might have known about this story. There was a building, it had a weird architectural design or structural design, it nearly could have fallen over. And Yeah, it was one so, of those problems that um, there, were six, there were five or six minor flaws, not one big flaw, so no one picked them up until... And, and so this story got broke by a guy called Joe Morgenstern in The New Yorker. He's a Californian writer, he's great. Uh, in 1997... So this had kind of been out in the, the popular consciousness for a long time by the time, I think it was 2014, that we put it out. So I guess what I'm asking is, like, if you're approaching a story that people kind of already know, you can't bank on the fact that it's novel and there's new information, like, what kind of voices are you including to differentiate this story from that New Yorker article, from just a Google search of the Wikipedia page? Yeah, so um, I think finding the archive audio was really important in that sense. We had, uh, I think, two or three interviews that we didn't use that were going to fulfill that role until I found the Le Measure MIT lecture. Um, and yeah, we sort of played with the we played with the idea that this was a story that everyone knew because we had something that no one else had. Do you want to maybe play that something that nobody else had, Joel? We scripted this bit. And Citicorp Centre has remained standing ever since, long enough to be renamed City Group Centre and later 601 Lexington. And this whole thing remained a secret for almost 20 years. In the early 90s, writer Joe Morgenstern overheard the story being told at a party. He interviewed LeMessure and broke the story in The New Yorker in 1995. LeMessure went on to tell the story publicly, like he did at MIT, which is how we have him talking about this. And after the story got out, it was written up as a textbook case of good ethics in structural engineering. New York was spared a tremendous loss of life and the annihilation of its skyline, all because Bill LeMessure was humble enough to give time to the inquiry of an undergraduate student. Thank goodness for this uppity college senior and his thesis, and kudos to Bill LeMessure, who, through his humility and heroism, saves the day. And uh, that's really the end of the story. Except... Now, wait a minute. There are a couple more things here. Let's take a step back 
And remember how this story starts. I got a call from a student. He was a real student from New Jersey. I think he was an architectural student. And this teacher had given him this building to study. I do not know the school. I wish he would call me. The way La Measure tells it and how Joe Morgenstern told it in The New Yorker, the college student, the young hero of our story, was lost to history. Okay, wait for it. Wait for this moment. It's a good one. Here it comes. It would have been sometime in the early 90s. I remember being upstairs in my bedroom and uh, had one of my sons. He was sort of hanging off me as I was trying to put him down to go to bed. And um, suddenly my husband, who had been downstairs, started yelling a little bit and saying, Diane, Diane, quick, quick, turn on the TV. Your thesis building is on TV. This is Diane Hartley. As far as we can tell, she was the student in LeMessure's story. And so I, you know, holding the baby with one arm, I fumbled for the remote and got to the channel um, just in time to hear... This building could have killed tens of thousands of people. The extraordinary chain of events began with a phone call out of the blues from a student in New Jersey whose professor had told him to write a paper on the Citicorp Tower, William LeMessure. And I explained to the student in a telephone call that he could tell his... Professor, I was aghast. I nearly dropped my baby. This was the first time Diane had ever heard of the emergency retrofits, the round-the-clock weather monitoring, the evacuation plans. And the involvement of a student. So when she heard LaMessure reference a student, a male student... I, of course, assumed, you know, gosh, there was some guy studying the building as well. And wow, you know, how could I miss this? Wow. So um, it, it was pretty remarkable. But I, of course, assumed at the time that there was another fellow who had been a better researcher than I had been. In fact, Diane never even considered that she might be the student in the story. That is, until she went to a Princeton event honouring her thesis advisor, David Billington. When I showed up at the event, David said, well, have you ever heard of the problems with the Citicorp Centre? And I said, yes, isn't that pretty remarkable? I wonder who it was that discovered this problem. And he said, you know, Diane, there are very few engineering schools in New Jersey. And quite frankly, I know all of them. And I know the heads of the programs of all of them. And I've talked to all of them. There was no other student from New Jersey that was studying the building except for you. So it must have been you. We should probably cut it there, but yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's important. The, the false ending is a great idea, but it also wasn't the idea you first brought to it, was it? There was a bit of a shift in how you reveal this, like, trump card, this voice no one's heard before, which is uh, Diane. Yeah, so, um, so, yeah, the original, the bit of original reporting was that we found the student and as, as, as opposed to all retellings of this story, it wasn't a male student, it was a female engineering student and... Um, so yeah, I, I originally structured my script with that scene where Diane is, like it's the 90s and Diane's in her bed or she's upstairs holding a baby. Oh, I almost dropped my baby, you know. That was going to be like the top of the show for me. And then we were going to work backwards through time to explain how this woman saved the day in New York and didn't know about it for 20 odd years. And I still think that that would have been 
okay. You know, that might have that might have worked. But um, it was late at night on this shared Google Doc, and uh, all kudos to Sam Greenspan, who called me up and said, oh, I know how we're going to do this now. And I got a bit nervous because he just started destroying months of work and like dragging stuff around. And I'm frantically checking if I've kind of backed up the old script in case like Sam's drunk or something. And um, yeah, he took her and made that false ending. And so I think even if you had have heard that story before, you might have been thinking, oh, like here's 99% invisible. They're dragging out the old LeMessure story. You know, those hacks. Slow news week in architecture. Yeah. And then I love how Roman, uh, <laughs> I love how Roman, you, like Roman scripts in his excitement. I think one of the joys of this show. <laughs> Wait, so I wanted to ask, does he script it in or does it? Oh, yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah, okay. All, all of the jokes are scripted, but they're amazing. Like, <laughs> So this episode of 99% Invisible rightly wins all the accolades that we can list really. And uh, it, Gets you some space to pick up some freelance work. Jess mentioned earlier, like on the media, uh, Radio Lab stuff as well. Yeah, um, Miyuki had actually originally uh, connected me with the Radio Lab folk. Um, so, because Miyuki worked with Jad when Radio Lab was like a three-hour as live show that went to air like eleven till two in the morning or so. I'm probably getting that, but you know, it was an overnight yeah. experiment. Yeah. Um, I'd just come off the back of doing a four-part series for BBC World Service, and I thought that experience would serve me well in pitching for, for jobs in, in New York. Until you get to New York and no one really knows what World Service is, which blew my mind. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I was just in Kiribati working on BBC World Service. And they'd be like... So, like, what's the BBC World Service? And I'm like, it, it, like, there's more people listening to that than anything else in the world, you know. It's like, but anyway, you do a podcast and suddenly doors start opening. So, I was doing some reporting initially for Radiolab and then I think I, was, I worked on, yeah, then moved to Freakonomics, then started producing for Radiolab and then on the media. And so, I was kind of trying to balance doing freelancey passion project kind of stuff that didn't pay well with kind of stints working on shows producing other people's material that actually paid the rent and everything else you need to live in New York. Um, and so, I mean, this is already bubbling away as a passion project, as you mentioned, but you, amongst all this freelancing, get really sick and tired of the American host as a figure and you start releasing some of your own podcast, your own voice. Um, and I think if we play some yeah. now, you, everyone will probably be able to tell that it's a bit different. When you add a new sense to your perception of reality, you are suddenly in a new world. If you have a new sense, then everything you've known looks or sounds or feels different. My name is Neil Harvison and we are in Pioneer Works, which is a space where there's different studios and where there's different artists working and it's in Red Hook in Brooklyn, New York. I've been for the last few months creating new artworks related to the sound of color and the color of sound.
Well, each person sounds different as well, so the the way people look at themselves is different as well when you listen to yourself. Each face has different sounds. So there's the sound of the eyes, the sound of the lips, the sound of the skin, the sound of the hair, then if there's beard, then there's beard. So uh, we are all a combination of usually five notes. You, for example, you sound, your eyes sound quite... Um, a, between A and, and A sharp. Your lips are quite high-pitched, so it's... E, between E and F, and then the rest of you is quite F sharp. What's interesting about listening to faces is that actually I've never ever detected a black skin or a white skin, and that's such a huge discovery for me, that humans are not black and white. We are all actually sharing the same hue, which is orange. People that say they're black, they're actually very, very dark orange. And people that say they're white, they're also very, very light orange. So we are all combinations of the same color, which is orange. I was born with complete color blindness, so when I was growing up, I wasn't able to sense color. I noticed that I had a different way of seeing things because I, I actually memorized color. So I learned that the sky was blue, that the grass was green. So when people ask me, what's the color of the sky, I would just say blue. Uh, or if someone said, what's the color of, I don't know, specific things that I would just memorize colors. So when they asked me the color of something and I couldn't remember then I felt that maybe I had bad memory. Then later I realized that other people weren't memorizing colors. They were actually seeing something that I wasn't seeing. So it's uh, still, color is a, a big mystery. But when I was growing up, it was very confusing. But I didn't know that I was seeing in grayscale until I was 11 years old. Up until then, doctors said that I was just colorblind, that I was confusing some colors, but there was a point when they realized that I, I was actually confusing too many colors, so it wasn't normal colorblindness. So they realized it was complete colorblindness, which is called achromatism. From that moment when I was 11, I started to wonder what color was, so that's when I started to investigate and read more about color and physics and try to understand what it is that I can't see. Um, so yeah, that just to, to fill you in, maybe to kind of like, yeah, yeah. that's Neil Harbison, who's uh, a cyborg. Uh, he was born with achromatopsia, which is a condition where you see the world in grayscale. And he had an antenna drilled into the back of his skull in a kind of a bedroom uh, operation in Barcelona. And so he has an antenna that sits in front of his eyes constantly and converts uh, color into sound that then plays through his skull and he hears, he's constantly hearing color as sound. It's him trying to get color in his world. So all of the, all of the sound design elements there were me taking sound off his antenna. So I think it's like Tim was saying before, you could, like one avenue to do that story would be to go, okay, I'm going to just come, like I'm going to compose these sounds. I'm going to make these sounds that I think 
uh, soundy and colory. And the other one is, which I'm more kind of familiar and, and better at, I think, is just putting a jack in the back of this guy's head and recording the sounds of his antenna. <laughs> um, so you're not in this at all. You're never in this program. So yeah, it's the, so, the, so. the talents are all directing the show themselves. How does that change how you record? So I think it's, it's like, you know, going, taking someone out into the environment and realising, kind of recognising how that changes the way you interview people. When you realise that you can't use your questions or actually script any of your voice into the piece, like when, because that's the show, like it's, it's non-narrated, like no one but the person's voice ever appears, it really changes the way that you A, ask questions and B, coach talent. You can't say, yes, well, what you said, really interesting question, Joel. Like, don't start sentences like that. Start sentences in, uh, in whole words. Start sentences like you are not talking to anyone. And um, so, yeah, I, I think there's a certain conceit there that maybe comes out if you're a train spotter and you sort of go, wait, this is non-narrated. So how, <laughs> you know... This sounds really legitimate and really genuine, but when you think about it, it's actually completely orchestrated and constructed. And that's the line I think you kind of traverse when you're making non-narrated stuff. Mm. Well, there's a much bigger conversation, I think, that we can probably have with a beverage later on today. But uh, I guess now would be a good time for questions. Hi there, thanks so much for that. I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about accessing and using archives. Um, sorry, the... Archival material and how you access and use that. Yeah, uh, I, I love archival audio. At the ABC, it's really easy because we have staff who look after the archives. Uh, John Spence is, is an absolute legend of archives and, and consistently blows my mind with his knowledge of, of the ABC archive. Um, it's a lot harder when you're producing a story out of a studio apartment in the middle of winter in Brooklyn. Um, for the uh, audio we got for Structural Integrity, I searched literally for days, if not weeks, for that. Um, with La Measure having... With, with La Measure dying, basically I was looking for any tape I could of him. Like, I wanted his voice in the show. I felt it was really... He was such a, such a central figure to that whole story. I thought it was really important that we weren't just talking about him, that we were hearing from him as well. And... Originally, there was the TV show that Diane almost dropped a baby to. Um, that was a PBS show. I'd started talking to them about maybe licensing or coming to some understanding where we could use bits of their interview for that. Um, at the same time, I'd gone back and was looking for, you know, scholarly articles that Le Measure had written, uh, anything that he'd done, basically. I was, I, was, I, was, I was deep into William Le Measure's world. Uh, and I found this reference to this MIT lecture that he gave once the story had broken, he was talking about it, and then it was a case of convincing MIT to A, go and send someone off to the, you know, I imagine it's like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark and they send some poor man with a trolley and a note to go and find this lecture and he's there for days and, you know, he's got a camel pack on and eating trail mix while he tries to find this tape. Um, it seemed, they made it seem like it was that difficult. Uh, but, yeah, lots of pestering. Finally, a CD turns up, you know, in 2014. Uh, and it's gold. And it's, you know, um, it's a lot of work, but I think if, you can, if you're working on a story and you can get anything that builds that story and builds that texture, it's great. 
So I just wanted to ask a bit more about um, in terms of you were mentioning like you weren't in that story at all about the cyborg and mm. then, you know, sort of where you decide when you're going to be a reporter, when you might be sort of more of a curiosity gap style, you know, uh, drawing the story along or when you completely remove yourself, you know, where, where you work that out. Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, and I don't, like, I don't have an answer. I think it's sort of like a, it's, it's an as it evolves piece. I mean, Your Own Voice is, I call it an occasional podcast without an audience because that's kind of what it is. It's more like a place for me to feel comfortable experimenting with stuff that I don't usually feel comfortable doing. Um, yeah, the non-narrated thing's hard. It's like, it's a lot of time pre-interview. So it's a lot of time kind of explaining what I want to do. These are everyone I've done so far has been like a musician or an artist, so they kind of get it in ways that other people might not. Um, and it's about, I think you have to like establish the trust at that level, at that conversation and in the interview. And there is a lot of trust that they put in you as a producer to not misrepresent them. And I think it's your job as a producer or a reporter or however you want to call what you're doing in that space. Like I think it's, it's your your job and your repu reputation not to break that trust. Um, but there's not one answer to that question. I, don't think. Um, I was just wondering about one line in the excerpt from Structural Integrity that you guys played. Um, it says, as far as we can tell, she was the student in LeMesh's story. And I was wondering about the as far as we can tell and what that was short for. Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, yeah, like, so, so this is the thing that comes in the sort of the, the final act of, of, you know, if you think of the sort of three-act thing, this is like the the content of the third act of that story. And no one really knows, right? So, like, the New Yorker piece had been fabricated in a... Well, not fabricated. That's, that's, that's the wrong word to use. It had been stylized to present this, uh, this David-esque student uh, saving the Goliath-esque... This is a bad metaphor. It's not, it's not completely accurate. But this, this student coming out of nowhere in New Jersey and saving the day and being carried off on the shoulders of these engineers and drinking champagne. Whereas in reality, Diane had been working with a thesis supervisor. Apparently, her thesis is a knockout. I, I leafed through it. To be honest, I didn't. I just read the stuff that was relevant for this story. It's, you know, four volumes long. Um, and he was like, you know, I think you're right. I can't find any mistakes that you've made. The, the calculations about the building falling over are right. So she rang up and spoke to someone that wasn't LeMessure. In the original telling, it was the student speaking directly to LeMessure, and, and she doesn't think that... She, she never spoke to LeMessure, apparently. Um, and then that was it. And so that's why she never knew. So then she, she just had this conversation and was like, oh, well, I'm probably wrong. As if, as if I, like a 22-year-old PhD student in New Jersey's got it over all of these career, you know, midtown Manhattan structural engineers, these guys don't mess around, you know. But apparently they do sometimes. Um, but they, they, they never got back to her and said, hey, by the way, Diane, you saved the day. I think they kind of realised that this was, uh, that she was right and then dealt with it themselves. And, you know, they didn't inform the public for years and they kept it really secretive. So I don't think they were letting it out. And so it wasn't until she saw, even when she saw it on TV, she thought, oh, someone else must have realised the same thing that I'd realised. And it was years after that that, she, that her super, uh, thesis supervisor went, no, no, it was you. And he's, he's convinced it was her because he knew everyone who was working in New Jersey engineering around the time that it all happened, and hers just fits in the timeline. 
and there's no other thesis on the building that can fit in that timeline. So it was sort of like triangulating that it was her, but you can't say, there's no direct evidence that says she's the person. As someone who works in audio, I was wondering what is in your podcast diet and um, how do you balance keeping up with the proliferation of podcasts that are out there and not trying to be swayed too much when doing original work? Yeah, um, I, I've started, you know, I'd, I'd regularly listen to the, the RM programs that are kind of part of my home that I was speaking about earlier while I was away, but I really fell off. I, I wasn't listening to absolutely everything that the station put out. And so now I'm back, I'm really binging on what RN and the ABC, like uh, ABC First Run, uh, are producing. Um, apart from that, I've tended, I used to listen to my favorite, like I had my favorites, and I'd always like just religiously listen to my favorite podcast. And these days I find myself sort of listening not quite as deep, but more broadly, because there's so much out there and I kind of just want to get a taste of everything. I was listening to another rounds episode where they talk about Kanye's album on the train this morning. And it is the funniest, like the first 15 minutes of that podcast, I was like laughing out loud in front of poor families taking their kids to the beach on a Saturday morning train. And it's, it's, you get weird looks. Um, so listen to another round. It's great. Uh, but yeah, I think I'm st in terms of influencing what I do. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Like maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. I think everything that you listen to does really. Yeah. Uh, Joel, this is just a question about the body farm piece. What did it smell like? <laughs> yeah, it smelled like um, it smelled like rotting pigs, mate. Um, you know, which wasn't it wasn't it wasn't always a bad smell. I think is the weirdest thing about the smell. Just one quick thing to finish on, Jess. Sorry, I know we're running right up against it. The weirdest thing about that pig story. Ah, oh, I wish we had time to play heaps of audio. But um, so to, to study how bodies decompose when they've got clothes on, some of the pigs have to be clothed. <laughs> and so she lifts up this big fume hood and there's like a pig in like a lacy negligee and silk undies with socks on its trotters. And I just, you can hear me lose it on tape because I'm just like, oh, this poor pig died with its clothes on. <laughs> and it's just like, it's one of those surreal moments where you're like, man, I, yeah, it's a good job. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers for coming. Thanks. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to the AudioCraft conference series. We've put links to Joel's work at audiocraft.com.au. So hop on over and have a listen. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter at AudioCraftConf. That way we'll keep you posted about the upcoming events we've got planned. This series was produced by Miles Martignoni and Jessica Binneth.